I think that when you're making trouble, you got to make sure you really understand your core contribution to the situation and stick to it, even when your friends want to want you to do something else. Do you feel the weight of the fact that you did something that stands alongside the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, that stands alongside the National Museum of African American History and Culture? I only think that because people who visit all of them or who interact with all of them say that they fill different needs in the world. To me, it shows that there was a need, but that need was really about the people who were going to take it forward. And so I, you know, people have told me that it sits among those institutions, so I'll take their word for it. Welcome to Troublemakers, a podcast produced by Pixel Recess. I'm your host, Mark Hubbard, along with Paul Armstrong. This week, we talked to Doug Shipman, the founding CEO for the Center for Civil and Human Rights, former CEO of the Woodruff Arts Center. I enjoyed our conversation with Doug. I did too. I did. I knew very little about Doug, so it was great to hear another story of someone doing amazing things. That yeah, it's great. A, a fascinating background. What's interesting so far, I don't know if you agree with this, is how no one really believes that they're doing anything of any import. Yeah. That they're just doing something because they feel like they should do it, which is, I'm just doing what I feel is right. That's the goal. That's the key. Do what's right and it tends to get you to good places. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Doug Shipman. I grew up in rural Arkansas, came to Atlanta the first time to go to Emory and ended up mostly staying here, went to Harvard for a few years for grad school and then came back to work in the private sector. Then a 10-week pro bono turned into 10 years of setting up the National Center for Civil and Human Rights from start to opening and beyond. And then I left there because I'd always made a promise to myself and to others that I was the startup person and that when it opened, I was leaving. And so a year after it opened, I left. Went back to the private sector for a couple of years to work on a, a consultancy that was about purpose and corporate values. Then got a chance to go to the Woodruff Art Center uh, and just wrapped up three years at the Woodruff Art Center. And now I am contemplating how to be on the front lines of what I consider to be the civil rights movement of my lifetime. So as a kid from Arkansas, what were you going to do? What did you want to do? And w- what gave you the vision for whatever that was? So I always knew I wanted to leave. Uh, it's a town of 1200 surrounded by little towns. I, I distinctly remember seeing a picture very early in my life of the uh, Supreme Court after the Supreme Court ruling in Brown versus Board of Education, the NAACP lawyers lined up on the steps of the Supreme Court. It's a very famous picture. Thurgood Marshall's prominently displayed. There's one white dude in that lineup. His name was Jack Greenberg. He was a longtime NAACP uh, lawyer. And I always thought, how did that guy get in that picture? <laughs> Over my uh, high school years, I got very interested in civil rights, and I thought I was going to be a civil rights lawyer. I thought I was going to be Jack Greenberg, basically, and it didn't quite end up that way, though it wasn't too far off. But I think for me, growing up in that place with very little diversity, I knew that wasn't the real world. I had not traveled. We didn't have a lot of means, but I could see out that the real world was much more diverse, much more colorful, multi-religions, lots of different places. And I knew I wanted to explore that world. And I also knew that somehow deep in me, I knew that I wanted to be an advocate for that broader view of the world. And so over time, I think it's just been a manifestation of that. Is that your parents? Not all little kids from Arkansas look at that picture and want to be the one white guy in it. Did, did that come from your folks? No, not really. I, I think all this is in retrospect, but I think in essence, what happened was my brother was much older than me. He went off to college. 
he befriended an African-American guy named Arthur. And I was five. I went to visit my brother. Arthur was a cheerleader on the football team. And I was a big, like any young man growing up in Arkansas, I was a big football fan. So Arthur immediately became my hero because he got me on the football field. (laughs) He's still a friend. He's just this incredibly gregarious guy. So I thought Arthur was my hero as soon as I met him. My brother brought him back to my little town. And when he did, the town had the reaction that you might expect in the 70s to a dark-skinned black dude with a huge natural afro walking around a town with no diversity. There were things said, came to the local high school basketball game, people were very ugly. And so it planted this seed in my mind. Here is Arthur, who seems like the greatest guy ever and is my hero in my five-year-old mind. And here are a bunch of people I live with and who I love who don't like him. And that makes no sense because these people should really love each other. And I think it's been chasing that notion that a lot of people talk about, especially people of color talk about the first time they realized what race was. That was the first time I realized what race was. And it didn't look very good in the way that people were responding. And so I've been chasing that. Why is it that we have conflict around skin color and other issues of identity? And how can I play a role in it? Given that even though your listeners can't see, I'm a a straight Christian, Southern, white dude. I'm That's who I am. What do you think changed you from, I would assume that there's plenty of other people in your community who would have taken the same situation and conformed. What do you think was in you that made you want to counter it? What was it that you said, this isn't right, so I want to go against it rather than I'm terrified of the consequence if I do? Well, and by the way, some of those people were probably in your church that behave that way. <laughs> no, oh, sure, sure. absolutely. Right. So it wasn't they, just they, a they, faith they response. I don't know at the time. I think over time, what I've realized is I I don't mind being a lone voice. I don't mind being a little contrarian. Mm -hmm. I don't mind being the only in a room. I've been very fortunate. I lived in India for a year. I've been in lots of professional and personal situations where I'm the only man, only white person, only Christian, whatever identifier I have. That just doesn't bother me. I don't feel the, the, the kind of deep need to belong in the sense of this kind of as being a barrier. And then two, remember, I, I wanted to leave. I, I wanted <laughs> to go. I wanted to explore the world. So it was a little bit of, of a, hey, is it, isn't the world a great interesting, cool place. And let's go explore it. If you're really going to explore it, though, you got to try the world on its terms. You got to visit communities on their terms. You got to do it the way that culture does it. If you're really going to get the cultural experience, or you're really going to get an authentic sort of intimacy. My question is, although that seems very enlightened for a kid coming out of high school, have you had experiences over those last years since that made you say, oh, I didn't have any idea what I was talking about? Like, I thought I understood what that meant, but I didn't have any idea what that meant. Well, sure. When I hit college, I, I had notions that thing that, that what I'd experienced wasn't the totality of the world, but I didn't really know much. So thankfully, when I was an undergrad, I took a lot of coursework in identities, gender studies, and race in the Constitution. I took a class from Robert Franklin before he was president of Morehouse about Martin and Malcolm and their theologies. I used that time to really delve in and to learn about things I had no idea about. I'd never read Malcolm X. I'd never, I never understood lynching in America. I didn't know anything about Hinduism. I didn't know anything about anything. So I really dove into that work in grad school. My 
theology work was really around social movements and religion and where those things interact. And so really trying to go deeply into issues and to see what those frameworks are. And I think my experience has been twofold. One is there's always more to the context than anyone except a real specialist understands, right? When you go into issues of identity and social justice and social movements, it's incredibly layered in the complexities, right? So I think there's a lot to explore in any of those issues. The other is for all the academic work you can do, these issues are very personal, right? So the story of of segregation and desegregation is not just structural and systemic, but it's also the story of individual people and the roles they played in it and the effects that they had on it. And so I think the other is for all of the academic work, there's no replacement from sitting across the table from John Lewis and saying, John, did Hosea Williams really say to you, we got to cross the bridge because I can't swim and neither can you? This is a great story, right? That they get to the top of the Pettus Bridge and Hosea says, John, can you swim? And, And he says, no, can you? He says, no. So I guess we keep going. And I thought this is a great apocryphal story, but I got a chance to ask John Lewis. I said, did that, did he really say that to you? And he said, yeah, it's exactly what he said. He had a grin on his face. So there's something about, I think, these topics that you have to combine a willingness to really do a lot of the work and go down in them from a historical, contextual standpoint. But then you also just have to listen to people and hear how it was to grow up in Mississippi or what it was to be on the Pettus Bridge or what it was to be the the first black teacher in in an integrated white school. Why go for the MDiv and policy? Why did you make those decisions as the next step in that journey? The Divinity School at Harvard is cross-tradition, cross-religious. Usually religion mm-hmm. departments are cross-religious and divinity schools are one thing. But because it's a Unitarian seminary, you had, you know, Quranic scholars and Catholic scholars and Buddhist scholars all in the same divinity school. So that made it really interesting for me, mm-hmm. interested in social movements and such. Policy, I've always been interested in policy. At the end of the day, I've, I've done a lot of work in business, but I think my mind really thinks more like a systemic policy thinker as opposed to a, a strict business person. And so I want wanted to put some framework around that. To me, it was really about trying to think about in a way to approach the world, which is sort of a policy way, but with this underlying notion that most people are either a part of a religious tradition or reacting to one. There are very few people that are completely without a religious influence. Even if they don't believe their parents or their grandpa or their this or their that, somewhere they've got a religious influence. And it drives so much of the conflict we have in the world that I wanted to be able to understand it deeply and also to understand social movements often have these underpinnings. I didn't really know what I wanted to do after that, but I knew that's in essence how I wanted to approach the world. I sort of view grad school as that's the tool you're going to sharpen up to attack most problems with first, not only, but first. And I wanted it to be a religious ethical construct and this construct around policy, which sort of greatest good for greatest number. And actually my wife wanted to come back to Atlanta to go to Emory Med School. And that's how we ended up coming back, which I was happy to do because Atlanta has a lot of cross-religious legacy and approaches a lot of problems from a cross-religious perspective and also from a multiracial perspective. How did that study affect your personal faith story? I think a couple of things. I took a great class from a a guy named Father Brian Hare, and he is a national security specialist. He's also a Jesuit priest, and he taught a course on just war theory, and half the course 
was full of basically peace-loving theology students who thought that war was not just, and the other half of the course were practitioners, basically <laughs> ex-generals and colonels who thinks that war is very just, and uh. the whole class was just constant debate. And I think that, honestly, what I think it gave me was a lot more empathy. I think it gave me a lot more empathy for not only the classic empathy of do good to people who are poor, do good to people who are hurting, but just sort of a political empathy, so to speak, which came in handy later on in my civil rights work, because I I think that it's easy to be righteous. It's much harder to reconcile. You can bark righteousness from the street corner, but reconciliation takes two or four or six or 20 or two million. And so I think that it developed a lot more empathy in my faith perspective and, and humility around, here's what I think today, Here's what I'm struggling with. And you're probably dealing with something too. So I, I remember hearing about you raising money for the Civil Rights Museum. How'd that come about? And why did you, other than the fact that, you know, you had a, a lot of important people came around that idea. Why did you want to make that a decade of your life? I wanted to make it 10 weeks of my life because I was a consultant at a Boston consulting group, a major firm in town that the firm had done a lot of pro bono work for then Mayor Shirley Franklin. She called and said, does anybody know anything about civil rights or museums over there? I need a 10-week pro bono feasibility study. And the person who got the call said, we don't know anything about museums. And we got this one guy who knows a lot about civil rights history, but he's a young white guy. <laughs> Mayor Franklin said, I just don't want to pay for whoever you send me. I don't care what they look like. If you know something, send them over. So it was 10 weeks and I thought it was going to be 10 weeks. And I thought it was going to be interesting. She and I almost immediately had a mind meld of what we thought this could be and what we thought Atlanta's real kind of position could be to the contribution of the greater dialogue around it. The 10 weeks turned into about a year and a half of really deeply delving into the idea and coming up with the perspective. And then basically she said, give me one year of your life. She had done the same thing with the Beltline. She had gotten a loaned executive. She said, be a loaned executive for one year. We'll get off the ground. We did that for one year. Then she said, look, it's going really well. Give me one more year and then it will be solidified. And so the second year was the beginning of the Great Recession. I said, if you're in, I'm in. We'll go all in. We'll either get it done or we'll run it off a cliff. But if you'll stick with it, I'll stick with it. And so we shook hands and agreed that we were going to we were going to take it on. And I think we both believed it for two reasons. One, we really believed there was a way to unlock the uh, civil rights legacy for those who didn't live through it. We really thought there was a way that you could create something that 15-year-olds could tap into. And two, we thought that there was really a missing piece around linking the, the American civil rights experience to all of these other social movements. And you'd seen linkages between LGBTQ movements and the civil rights movement. That had, that had been forming, and you'd seen it with other human rights movements around the world. But there really wasn't a place that sort of every day said, yeah, that's what we live. And so she and I were really both taken with that. And so that was the moment that I said, okay, I'm willing to go all in. I'm willing to leave my job. I'm willing to have an unknown future about whether or not this will ever happen. But because that really is a a potential game changer for the city, let's see if we can pull it off. What about the museum? Do you feel is the best thing or you're most happy with or you feel like most realize that mission? I think there's two aspects. One is when we opened, actually before we opened, we were letting some people go through and, and test it out. And the early reports were, that we didn't have tissues and people were crying a lot, that there were certain spots in which people were becoming very emotional. And I think that was always the hope that it would be an emotional experience first and an intellectual one second. And that people would walk out and just say, I felt this, I I could imagine this, I questioned this, as opposed to I learned this. We want them to learn, but what we really want them to do is to right. viscerally feel these issues. And I think in a lot of ways, 
it does that. And I think that's very gratifying. I think the other is since then, so it opened in 2014. So we're now six years on almost every march or memorial or big gathering that happens around almost any human or civil rights issue, whether it was the Women's March, whether it was the LGBTQ gay marriage equality, when that happened, there was a big celebration, whether it was the COVID memorial that was done just a few weeks ago, they either happen at the center or people start or finish at the center. And it's not only one group, it's across all kinds of different groups and different people. And I think that was always the intent. The intent was to create a place that people could touch the civil rights legacy, but then bring it into their own contemporary issues. And that means that it's not mine. And frankly, it's not even Dr. King's. It's not one group. It's this collective vision of what the world could look like. And people feel as if it's a place in which they want to touch and relate them, their movement or themselves to. That's very gratifying. Very gratifying. Was that kind of experiential? Because there's a lot of experiential pieces to the museum, right? Like the counter, yeah. <laughs> which I don't even know how anybody ever makes it through. Was that normal at the time or were you breaking a little bit of ground there? Well, we were breaking ground because we, our creative de designer is a guy named George C. Wolf, who is best known for directing Broadway shows and directing film. And he's won a couple of Tonys. In essence, what we did was we created a show in the form of an exhibit. And what's really unique is that George had done something similar. He had created a museum in the form of a show called Harlem Song. And literally the audience sits there and the show moves from right to left across the stage. And as you're moving through different galleries in a museum. So he flipped the script. But because he comes from the world of film and of theater, that's really more of what it is. It's almost scene by scene. You are walking through and you are feeling these things and they're happening. And the whole point is you're trying to put you in that moment so you can decide what you would have done and what you would have felt. And so I think that's very unique. You almost never see somebody from that world in the museum exhibition space development side. I need to ask you about your troublemaking. Yeah, it's interesting. There are a couple related to the Center for Civil Human Rights that came to mind. When we first started, Mayor Franklin and, and I and a couple of others, we basically wanted to, to take a very clear stance that LGBTQ rights were going to be included. Stories of LGBTQ movements were going to be included. And we saw no division there. So I remember we had this big meeting at City Hall and she stood up and she said, look, I want to make one thing clear when we build this place. Gay rights are going to be a big part of the story. And I got up and I said, I just want to underscore what the mayor's just said. Gay rights can be a big part of the story. And the first 12 speakers who had signed up for public comment all stood up and said, hi, my name is Tom. I came here today because I really wanted to implore you to include gay rights, but you're going to. So I'm sitting down. First 12 speakers, because nobody had thought we were going to draw that line. Then about a year later, several of the leaders from different LGBTQ groups came Came to me and said, look, we don't have a gay rights museum or an LGBTQ museum in the city. We really want you to make this place that place. And we really want you to over showcase stories of gay rights, gay culture, LGBTQ issues. And I said, I can't do that. And they said, what do you mean? You said you're committed to these issues. I said, I'm absolutely committed. But our principle is that the power of this place is going to be the fact that it's all under one roof and it can touch the civil rights legacy. And if we over-index on any one group, then we're going to lose the power. And in fact, it's going to be worse for you because you will have more floor space, but the moral authority of the place will mm -hmm. be diminished. It's not the issue per se, but it's the fact that we have to be very, very broad in our approach. And several folks got very upset with me, very unhappy, mm -hmm. and really thought that was a 
miss. And we were just deeply committed to this principle and to this vision. And we had to do, they had the same conversation with two or three other groups, immigrants, rights, community, same thing. We really need this to be a, a lot of floor space and a lot of storytelling. We said, that's not what we're going to do. And so we really made some people unhappy. Then ultimately, most of them came back and said, now I understand what you were trying to do. And I think what's interesting is when you're, especially when you're sort of on the left side of the political agenda and you're trying to do things that are very inclusive, I think sometimes you can bend yourself so far that you lose a more powerful principle. You're trying to make sure that the, that the thing is big enough and broad enough, but it loses its ability to cut through. And in this case, I think what we got right was that vision for what this place was trying to do. And the fact that all of those groups use it for their own means and they jump off from it was exactly the point. But had we over-indexed with any group, it would have lost that spot. And so to me, I think there's an interesting lesson that I learned there about making sure you understood what was non-negotiable. And it had to be non-negotiable for everybody, even the people that you love and ultimately you support. And and the first group that came to me, I said, I will help you raise money if you want to build another institution, but it ain't this one. And and I'm sorry, that just can't be this one. So I think part of troublemaking is not only troublemaking against the sort of people who you're going to make trouble against, but sometimes (laughs) you got to make trouble with your allies and with your friends and with the people that you really love if you've got a clear view for your lane. And I think that's the other piece is that I, I have often asked myself, what can I uniquely do given who I am and given the experiences that I have doesn't mean I can do everything, but there are going to be some things that I can uniquely do. And then there are going to be some days that I'm just there as a foot soldier and I'm in the back and I'm quiet. In this case, I was leading that institution that had a certain angle and that angle was different than the King Center and it's different than the university and it's different than the center that Brian Stevenson built down in Montgomery. They're different institutions. I think that when you're making trouble, you got to make sure you really understand your core contribution to the situation and stick to it. Even when your friends want to want you to do something else. Do you feel the thread between those institutions? Do you do you feel the weight of the fact that you did something that stands alongside the National Memorial for Peace and Justice that stands alongside the National Museum of African American History and Culture? That's a weighty thought. I only think that because people who visit all of them or who interact with all of them say that they fill different needs in the world and they are different in their approaches. It's not like we have four Center for Civil Human Rights is in four different Mm, cities. I mean, Montgomery is a very different Mm. approach than Washington. And frankly, than even uh, what you see in Birmingham, the Civil Rights Institute there, or at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, I think that it did find a unique spot. And even better, a lot of people don't have any memory that I was any part of it which is also very gratifying because it means that it's theirs. You know, people come up to me and say, have you been to that place? It's really great. I really love it for these reasons. I say, yeah, I've been there. It's a really great place. (laughs) To me, it's also, it shows that there was a need, but that need was really about the people who were going to take it forward. And so I, you know, people have told me that it sits among those institutions. So I'll take their word for it. I want to ask you one yeah. thing about Woodruff. Uh, I was a theater kid and a musician. Paul's a musician and a, and a degreed art major. The arts is fundamentally in its DNA subversive. That's yes. that's the very core sure. of the arts very often. And institutions support that subver- subversiveness through funding and supporting artists and making sure that they have the freedom to do that. But 
large arts organizations are not particularly subversive organizations. That's not the constituencies they serve don't like that often, even though they like the idea of the subversive art. It's a really interesting dichotomy. And with you coming in with such a social justice bent to begin with in a city like Atlanta, taking over a very large arts conglomerate, quite frankly, that sets the stage for a lot of what happens in the city in the Southeast in the arts in general. How do you balance those things? You fit perfectly in the subversive piece, right? I give you a division and let you push the division to be subversive, give you the whole thing. How does that shake out? So what was interesting about the Woodruff and some of this preceded my time. And and I think that I tried to use my tenure to continue to accelerate it. The great thing about the Woodruff was the growth at the Woodruff was coming from diverse audiences. So all of a sudden, the strategic imperative for growth was to continue to diversify audiences. And that diversification was in a few ways. Audiences getting younger, audiences coming from backgrounds that were further down the economic ladder, and from racial and ethnic groups that were typically underrepresented when it comes to to patronage. Because growth was coming from that way, especially for the High Museum and for the Alliance Theater, then all the other pieces, you don't get the same conflict, right? Because everybody says, well, this is great. We're getting growth in those ways. So our leadership should reflect the growth of our patrons. The funding should reflect the growth of our patrons. Our staff should reflect the growth. But so you get a virtuous cycle. And what I've told a lot of organizations that I've talked to about this is if you can get diversity and equity and inclusion as a strategic imperative to your success, actually, you can get people on board pretty quickly. The problem is when DEI or subversiveness or reforming or any of these things don't feel like they're at the core of the strategy. And then they become the extra thing that we're having to work on that's taking our eye off the ball. That doesn't work very well. The moral position of we ought to isn't usually strong enough in the day-to-day, I have to get this done and where's the money going to come from and how are we going to do this? But at the Woodruff, those things have aligned. And I think you're going to continue to see that movement happen. And then it's also filtering down in who are the interns and where are the programs for the next generation of curators. And real credit should go to all three of the leaders, Rand and Susan and Jennifer's at the ASO, that all three of them are not only working on the institution in Atlanta, but they also are saying, look, we're in Atlanta and we have the ability to lead when it comes to the diversification of our fields. And we know that some of the investments we're going to make are going to be in people who are going to go elsewhere and lead other institutions. And that's okay because that's what we can do. And that's one of our big contributions to the field. So I think all of that is moving in the right direction. I think the harder part at this very moment for the arts is that performances are non-starters right now. And the Woodruff has been able over time to get very good at earning money, as have a lot of arts organizations in the city. They've gotten very good at earning money because the philanthropy is not as big here for arts as it is in other places. And you just can't earn money right now at the same rate. And so that's a real conundrum. I just think for me, I thoroughly enjoyed my time time at the Woodruff, at the end of the day, I am just convicted at the moment personally that I I need to move back towards something that is really at the core of social change kinds of agendas right now. And I think that the Woodruff is doing social change, but it is not at its core a social change organization. And I think that's just where I need to be. It's a personal decision. Visual experiences in terms of art or theater or whatever else are a great conduit towards people having empathy for experiences. In order to make honest art, you have to have empathy. And in order to have empathy, you have to take yourself out of the equation and think of something else. But now that we're in this eight months, nine months now, where we're all isolated, and we have a rising movement of 
the need for diversity and inclusion with within Black Lives Matter and immigration. But we can't gather and we can't experience these pieces that help provide empathy. It seems so cruel in a way to have this uprising and then no way to really coalesce without danger. How do you feel we can transition this, keep the wave going, if you will? It's it's a great question. And I do think that we have been limited as a society, but frankly, as a world, by our inability to get together to process what's happening. I think there's a couple of things. One is the, the upside of COVID is that we once again have been able to focus a broad swath of society on a few things, right? So with so much information and the way the information flows, it's very hard to have one seminal moment. The killing of George Floyd became something that everybody saw and everybody reacted to. Mm-hmm. So I think from that perspective, it is a blessing that we've had COVID in the time of this disruption because it has focused the communal conversation. Now, our ability to process it, though, has been limited to your point. I think a couple of things moving forward. One is, I think the other side of COVID is that it's hyper-localized us again because we haven't been able to do anything except walk around our neighborhood and talk to a very small group of folks. And we really are in touch with our school if we have kids more than ever. And I think a lot of things have shrunk down our scope. I think that's a good thing because I think tackling these kinds of issues, of course they are systemic and there are lots of systemic things to do, but they also can be solved in very local, protective, relational sorts of ways, which is let me get a very small group. Let me get a group in a neighborhood. Let me get a group in a city. Let me get a group in a congregation together. I hope we don't jump immediately back to nationalize or internationalize all aspects of the solutions. I hope that we say, oh, wait a minute. Let's see how we can actually do this on a very localized level and build you know, some of those muscles back again. I think that's one piece of it. I think the second is, and we will know more in a few days, but the participation of young people, not only in the protests, but the participation of young people in this election cycle, I think that has a real potential to find a way through here. Now, it's not going to be easy. One of the outgrowths of living longer is that we have more generations alive at the same time than we ever have. We still have a generation alive that grew up in Jim Crow, going all the way through younger folks. That's a lot of societal area to cover, right, of lived experience. But with that said, I think that the rise of not only younger people, but the the youngest generations are huge. I think if they're willing to participate, that they can rewrite the rules of how we live more quickly than we have been able to before. And I'm hopeful that they will continue to write those rules. But look, within the next 15 to 20 years, we're a majority minority country. We know the demographics are moving so that white folks are no longer going to be the majority of the country. We have to together fashion what a multiracial America looks like, because we are going to get there one way or another within a very limited amount of time. And so to me, all of this falls under the umbrella of how do we imagine the America that we want to live in and an America that has to include all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different people with power, with authority, with participation, that's the question of the day. And I think that's the question we're going to have to grapple with. 
The, the other thing that's been on my mind in this period of reckoning has been the fact that I really do believe that there is a role for white folks to talk to other white folks and to compel them to contemplate these issues, confront these issues, and then not just intellectualize these issues. I think one of the hardest things, white folks, for lots of reasons, some good, some bad, but they're very scared to weigh in on issues of race. And so the first way to weigh in is to get a book and get a book club and intellectualize them. And that's good to a certain extent, but there is no replacement for going to a community meeting, for spending your money at a Black-owned business that almost exclusively serves Black clientele at the moment, for putting yourself in a religious situation in which the, the, the congregation doesn't look like you. There's no ability to replace that intellectually. And so I think I've been spending a lot of my time, frankly, just talking to other white folks, saying, here are ways you can do that. Here are things I would hope that you would consider. Here are things that I'm willing to do to, to help you create your own experience experiences, because I think that there is no path to um, tearing down systemic racism without the participation of white folks in one way or another. It does not mean that it has to end up there, but I think that really I've been compelled to think about how can I encourage and engage other white folks to do some work. The way I always like to think of most people is have closed fists with what they believe, which is willing to fight, right? They're ready to fight about it. If I can get them to let go a little bit, open up, if you can find that thing to open them up and then it starts to open up a lot of other things like I'm not here to fight with you. I'm here to, you know, hands up, open it, open hands. You, you know, you put your, your finger on something. One of the reasons... And I think the data would back this up. One of the reasons why marriage equality shifted so quickly was because as folks became more open with coming out to their families, all of a sudden it went from an issue of those people to Uncle Tommy and my niece Jane and oh, my aunt. And all of a sudden that issue was personalized within families and a lot more families knew of somebody who was out. And so then marriage equality became, I don't know about everything, but I really would like Pam and Jane to be able to, to have a family. And the issue is we still don't have enough enough cross-racial relationships. The, the data just shows us that, that white folks don't have that many relationships across races. And so I tell people what it felt like to live in India for a year and not to see another white person for two weeks. What did it feel like? I'm just going to tell you what it felt like for me. This is what it felt like for me. You can draw the inferences that you want to, but I've experienced that. I have literally been in that place where the, the, the I only see myself in the mirror. I don't see myself reflected in any other part of the society, that begins to disrupt notions of what you take for granted and what you sort of actively think about, which is what you're, which is exactly what you're saying as well. If you can disrupt the, oh, the world is the way it is, and that's the way I think about it too. The world is different from the way that I think about it. Then you can cause some ability to reflect. What needs to happen next? Where are you searching for problems to solve? How do you prioritize? And Maybe it's my policy background, but as I look at the current situation, I don't think that philanthropy and activism and goodwill are enough to change outcomes. I think they're all ingredients. But to me, if policy doesn't change, outcomes are not going to change in the ways that I want them to or uh, that I think a lot of people who are asking for changes to happen especially from a systemic perspective. There's too much money that flows through the public sector. There are too many regulations. There are too many laws that just bound what's possible when it comes to issues like housing or poverty or education or whatever the case may be. So to me, the question is, you know, what are the big policy levers and what are the mechanisms by which to change those policies? That's really what I'm thinking through. And obviously, we'll get some interesting data when it comes to these elections. And not only just who wins the presidency and who wins senators, but also their interesting propositions. 
physicians around the country that are policy changes that can have impacts. But to me, I think it's really it's really finding the ways to contribute in that arena because I think that in some ways we sort of gave up on policy for a while. I think we've got to dive back into policy and really the minutia. How are the laws bounding what is possible for these issues? Do you run for office sometime? I don't know. Maybe. Um, only if I think, back to this fundamental question, if I think I can uniquely contribute, then maybe. But if there's some better way, that's fine too. Elections are only are just the start of change. Whoever wins or loses at the election does not change anything that we need to do. And that, that reminds me of a great story that Andrew Young tells. He and King went to see LBJ, and I believe it was after 64 civil rights legislation had been passed, but before 65 voting rights. And they talked to LBJ and the president says, look, guys, I got to tell you, I just, I can't, I don't have the power to do anything. I, I just don't have it. I can't move any more legislation. So they walk out of the Oval Office and Andy Young turns to Dr. King and says, what are we going to do now? And Dr. King says, you heard the man, we got to give the president some power. And Andrew Young says, I'm looking at Dr. King going, who do you think you are? You can't give the president of the United States some power. And he said, but then it dawned on me what he was saying is that we had to create the external environment by which the president could respond because the president, LBJ, really wanted to, but he didn't feel like he he had the the momentum. And I think it's to your point that the last thing you do is end your political involvement on the day of the election. That's actually the start of your political involvement. And it does take all those pieces. It takes activism. It takes policy, real deep policy analysis, it takes corporate, it takes philanthropy, but at the end of the day, it also takes those political mechanisms changing and moving and bettering the environment so that people can, you know, live the lives they want to live. There's a couple ways to make trouble, right? You can start something yourself or you can join something. How do you weigh, even as you think of what comes next, the difference between, oh, I got to go start a new thing versus maybe I need to find out where the work is and help make it happen. Yeah. So I've started something, obviously, and mm-hmm. I've joined up in other things. Starting something's really hard, and it really takes a long time. I think at this point, for me personally, I probably am better and more effective by joining something and accelerating it or helping somebody who's founded something to scale it. I think that's probably my better contribution at this point. Things do need to be started, but it it takes an enormous lift to start something. And given that I have successfully started something, I think I can give that sort of insight and maybe somebody skip a couple of painful steps along the way. You don't get quite as much ego payoff from joining, but deciding that you're willing to trade the ego payoff for the impact says something. That's right. I think that's, yeah, I think that's right. You don't get, you don't get nearly as many headlines by being an enabler as being a founder, but you got to, you got to, I think you got to upfront say, how am I going to get satisfaction from this situation? How am I going to get spiritually fed from it? Starting takes a lot of effort and time, but you're also in control of the mechanisms and going into something that's established takes equally as much effort because you're trying to change things that just no one necessarily may be even asking or they're asking but not willing to do. To me, I'm always like, they're different challenges of the same coin, essentially. Yeah, I, I think that's right, though. I think there's a, there's another piece that I often find myself in. I, I've moved in a lot of different circles and not everybody has moved in all of those circles. And as let's just take Atlanta. As much as I think 
person A and person B know each other, they don't in this town. And so I often find myself connecting people to one another and trying to shortcut the distance between a funder and, a, and an org or leader A and leader B and leader B can really be on their board. Those types of things and doing it with a real eye towards inclusion and a real eye towards diversification. I think I find myself at this point in my professional life to be able to, to meld together worlds more quickly. And instead of saying, I have to change this org to say, gosh, what this org really needs is some more resources and a couple of doors to open for them because they've got the answer and try to help them you know, find their way more quickly in that. Thank you for listening to Troublemakers. Please subscribe, rate, share with your friends, and we'll see you next time.